Luke chapter 15. Last week we read verses 1 through 7. And I think, just so we can get everybody caught up, I'd love to read that. So before we skip to 8 and through 10, which is our passage for today, we're just going to read verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 15. It says this, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. What man among you, who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? Rhetorical question. The answer is, anybody would. And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. That was our passage for last week. And and here's what we learned. I just want to get everybody caught up. One, that people who are disconnected from God are a priority for God. People who are disconnected from God are a priority for God. And second thing was when something is missing, you search for it for the exclusion of what is found. The shepherd left the what? 99 and went to go for the one that was lost. And my challenge to those of you who consider yourself a part of Clarity Church and have allowed me to be your pastor was this. At the end of our gathering, you'll remember I said this, or if you don't remember, I'm going to say it again. By God's grace, we are going to do whatever it takes to enter into the journey of becoming a church for whom the mission of God is not just a goal, but a priority. We're going to do whatever it takes To enter into the journey, it's going to be a journey. It's not like we're going to flip the switch and next week we're going to become this great church that perfectly practices everything that the Lord requires of a church to to be, to to be a a mission-driven and reaching kind of church. Some of you are saying, oh, we're not that already? Let me ask you a question. When is the last time that you saw someone be baptized as a result of our missional effort to reach people for Jesus. How, how long has it been since maybe even in your life, because of your engagement with this local church and the discipleship that's happening in your life, have you been able to share the gospel with someone and enter into spiritual conversation and even lead them to faith? How long has that been? And I think if we're honest with the answer to that question, as a whole, I'm not judging you individually, as a whole, we have a journey to enter, okay? And we're going to do whatever it takes to enter into this journey of becoming a church for whom the mission of God is not just a goal that we can put on our website, that I could talk about every week, but that it actually is a priority. So this was the parable of the lost sheep. And some of you are like, man, why didn't you just say that last week? We could have been done. <laughs> we could have got the lunch better uh, earlier. But today we're going to be looking at the second parable, which is called the parable of the lost coin. And it goes like this, verse 8. 
Jesus goes on to say, Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. Unless you're reading this passage in the original language it was written, it can sound like Jesus was telling a story about a woman who had ten indistinct bills that were green, right? What are ten coins? What, what are ten coins? It doesn't make any sense for us. It's kind of hard to understand the worth of what is being translated. No, I don't want to talk to you, Siri. It's kind of hard to understand what is being translated as ten silver coins unless you understood the word that was being used there, which is the word drachme. I got a picture of these drachmes here. And during biblical times, one drachme was commonly understood as one day's worth of wages, which meant that this woman had the equivalent of only how many days? Ten. Good, you were listening in math class. Ten days worth of wages. Now, historians and Bible scholars alike have tried to fill in the blank regarding what the symbolism behind ten drachmae was. Some have adjusted, some have suggested that uh, the coins are likely to re- represent family savings. Uh, others have suggested that it may have formed a part of a woman's headdress. It looked something like this, which being part of her dowry, she wore constantly. This is very common during these times. And we can get into that, and for some of you, that's the interesting part of studying the Bible. But listen, while there are many theories about what the ten drachmae represented based on the textual and historical context, here's the truth. We don't know. (laughs) We really don't know what they were for. And it really isn't important because Jesus didn't think it was important to explain what they were for. But what all scholars and theologians do agree on what these ten coins represented was that, as one scholar would say, quote, this was all that she had. And when you compare the kind of picture that Jesus is pointing in this parable to the previous one of the lost sheep, you can kind of see this pattern of Jesus trying to increasingly emphasize the importance of finding things that are lost. For instance, simple math. If you had a hundred sheep and you lost one, that one is still pretty important. But imagine if you only had ten of something. Ten coins. And then you lost one. If the Pharisees who were asking Jesus why he was spending time with a bunch of sinners Uh, couldn't pick up from the first parable that God was a good shepherd who cared about the one lost person over the 99 that don't need saving, then Jesus would have really gotten their attention by saying, and this is a little controversial, listen to this, that God was like a, a woman who lost one tenth of everything she had. And in the spirit of raising the stakes within his storytelling, Jesus describes not only the woman going to look for the lost coin, like he did the shepherd going out to look for the lost sheep. He gives detail about how she looked. Notice the difference. The first story, it just says they lost a sheep, went out. Here, lost a coin, and then Jesus describes how. What does it say? Verse 8. 
She searched, she sweeps, she lights a lamp, sweeps the house, search carefully until she finds it. Carefully. If you're a person who takes notes, likes to write in your Bible, you can circle that word carefully. Carefully. Carefully is a word that paints a picture of diligence and intention. It's less about, you know, oh, opening up this carefully. It's not about delicacy, but it's more about intention and a diligence. Here's the point, though. In verse 1, we see the Pharisees looking at Jesus. And they see Jesus with these tax collectors and sinners. And they are literally offended. In fact, the Pharisees looked at Jesus and they viewed his attention to sinners as unruly, as offensive. But Jesus wanted the Pharisees to know that there was nothing unruly and offensive about his pursuit of what gave pleasure to the heart of God. Seeking sinners and leading them to repentance. In fact, Jesus wanted them to know like the woman with the lost coin, God had a diligent and careful plan to seek and save the lost. And Jesus saw himself as a steward of the responsibility to make that plan come to life. Which makes me wonder, what would the typical follower of Jesus say if they were asked about their diligence to accomplish God's plan of seeking and saving the lost? Like, what would a typical follower, not you, I'm just saying, a typical follower. You know that one that you follow on Instagram? That friend of yours who goes to like a different church? You know, that coworker who's a Christian? What would a typical follower of Jesus say if they were asked about their diligence, their carefulness, their intention of accomplishing God's plan of seeking and saving the lost? What would they say? What would you think they would say? Maybe that's too hard. Maybe, let me be, maybe I'll, I'll just make it personal. What would I say if I were asked about my diligence to accomplishing God's plan of seeking and saving the lost? What would I do? I don't know what I would do. What, what would I say? What would I say? What would you say if you were asked about your diligence to accomplishing God's plan of seeking and saving the lost? Like, what would you say? If we had a conversation where you felt like I wasn't judging you and we're just kind of being honest and I was sharing how I felt I was doing and I said, hey, how about you? How do you feel like you're doing? What would the honest answer be? And then because we're all together, (laughs) and that God didn't build individuals, but he built his church, we're made up of individuals, I think it's important for us to ask as as a church, what would we say if we were asked about our diligence to accomplishing God's plan of seeking and saving the lost? I'm not saying yours. Maybe you're doing awesome. I ask that question, I say, hey, how about you? And you're like, you know what, Phil, I, I feel pretty good. I feel like I'm doing what God has called me to do. Okay, great. How do you think we are doing as a church? How do you think we are doing? 
as a church to accomplish the mission of being part of God's desire to seek and save the lost. How do you think we're doing? Those are just good questions to ask, I think. Jesus goes on to say in verse 9, When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin I lost. Sounds exactly like the last story. And I tell you in the same way, Jesus knew that he was telling the same story. There is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. For the first portion of the story, the woman behaves as anybody would expect. She searches for the lost coin diligently and does not stop until she finds it. But according to some Bible scholars, they note that her response in finding the coin is perplexing. I found this interesting, to say the least. I wasn't as captured by that, but I just read too many commentaries, and they were like, this is a very perplexing issue. Why? Because in her great joy, she invites friends and neighbors to rejoice with her, most likely to share in a festive meal. Understanding that these ten drachmae was all she had. Some of you who come over to my house for meals will know. Like I heard some of you like, wow, you guys really put out a spread. And that's what you do when you're trying to welcome people. But if I only had ten dollars... What would the spread that I put out for my, my friends coming over? You'd be like, why did you do this? I think you literally spent more money than finding what you lost. And this is what one scholar said. He says this, that hardly seems reasonable since she is likely to spend more than she recovered. And as a relatively poor person, she has 10 drachmas. She can ill afford to act like she has money to burn. I thought that was interesting. But this is the point. This is the point of the parable. This is the point. That God pours out the same sort of lavish generosity in finding one repentant sinner. Remember, because in this story, the person who has lost something is a representation of God. And here we have the woman who, after losing and finding demonstrates generosity in finding what she has lost. And the same is true about our God. And next week, the next parable, some of you are already looking ahead, you'll know. Jesus builds this case and he ends it with the parable of the prodigal son. If you have a trouble believing that with this parable, then the next one you're going to definitely understand that this is what our God does. You know, when I was a kid, um, I had an uncle who was a firefighter. He was in Erie, Pennsylvania. In fact, I have a picture. Uh, I don't know if this is, I try to find the exact one, but in Erie, Pennsylvania, it's a really old city. Some of you may or may not have been there. Uh, my uncle was a firefighter, and I remember when I was uh, probably about eight or ten years old, uh, I went as we normally did during Christmas, we went up to Erie, PA to go spend time with family. And my uncle, uh, I remember going to his house 
I, I saw the, he, he had a CB band in his room. So this is before cell phones. You didn't get a text message. This, this is before all that paging, right? So the only way he could know that he needed to come in when he wasn't at the house, at the firehouse, by the way, he ended up taking me there. You know, you go on the inside and you go upstairs. And I remember there were little beds there because they, they had shifts where they would stay overnight sometimes. And they had a kitchen and they lived. They ate together. They worked together. Uh, it was very interesting. And I always thought that it was, it was really cool being a firefighter. Uh, but anyways, my, my uncle who was a firefighter, uh, I remember he, he took me there and, and I just so, I was just so enamored by this kind of life. And if you know anything about firefighters, they train and they learn how to put out fires, not for the benefit of themselves, but for the benefit of others. Like when you think about it, no firefighter trains because they're like, sweet, now, I know how to put out fires in my home. <laughs> right? That's that's not what happens. That's not what happens. And how funny would it be if people who became firefighters only did it so that they could be equipped to put out fires in their home? Like, how funny would it be if someone said, you know, you ask, like, why did you become a firefighter? Well, you know, because I'm deathly afraid of fires in my own house, and I just wanted to make sure... That if a fire ever happened, I want to make sure that I'm ready to take out these fires. And it wouldn't be because that's not what firefighters do. All of their work and preparation and all their knowledge, all of their coordinated work together. I don't know if you've ever seen firefighters train. You know, they, they all train to work together. Sometimes even eating, living together in preparation. For what? For the work of a greater mission. To rescue people from disaster. You know what the interesting is that firefighters actually prepare to rescue people. One, who don't even know they need rescuing. And two, (laughs) if you were to ask them, would you like to have a fire in your home so firefighters can come? They would be like, no. I don't want firefighters coming to my house. Don't want that. You know, I, 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 wonder, I wonder if that could be a good illustration of the church. Sure, you could probably find some holes if you go down the logical, like, oh, well, you know. But for the sake of the illustration, I wonder if the church, I wonder if our lives could learn something from firefighters. That all of our training, all of our knowledge, all of our living together, all of our eating together, all of our working together is not, in fact, for our own benefit. But we're preparing our lives for something. For saving people who face disaster. And for each of us individually, there's a personal responsibility to engage in the journey of becoming a person of the kingdom of heaven. There's a personal responsibility. For some of you, all it will take is Jesus' words here in Luke chapter 15. In fact, as we read this, some of you are like, oh God. I'm sorry. 
I haven't been like the shepherd. Oh God, forgive my heart. I have not been like the woman with the lost coin. Oh God, forgive me that I have been maybe more like the Pharisee. For some of you today, that's it. Nothing that I say. In fact, it'll just be the word of God. And for you, you'll be a person who understands quickly that we are ambassadors of Christ, entrusted with the gospel to represent a kingdom, and that it's not only our responsibility to be missionaries in this world, to take the message to everyone we meet, everywhere we go, every day we live, but that we are to find joy alongside God, our Father, in all of heaven, doing whatever it takes to see the lost be found. For some of you, that will come really easy, really quickly. But I would imagine that for others, if I was to swing the scale, some of you might be more in between. I would imagine that for others, it's going to take a deep look at the motivation of your heart for why you follow Jesus. Wait, a deep look at your heart for the motivation of why you would utter these words. I am a Christian. I follow Jesus. I believe in Jesus. For some of you, it'll take a deep look. Just like a man by the name of Simon in Acts chapter 8 who believed the message of the gospel and was baptized. Like this guy believed in the message of the gospel. He was baptized. He became part of the church. And you can read the story for yourself. Something happened, right? If you know the story, he was found that the intent of his heart for following Jesus and believing Jesus was wrong. What do you mean? Okay, I thought you said all we have to do is believe. Yes, but why do you believe? Why do you want to believe? Why do you follow? And for some of you, you're going to need to look like this man Simon in Acts chapter 8 at the intent of your heart and recognize that maybe you've been on the wrong path. And that like Simon, you need to say, Lord, I'm sorry. You need to repent. Maybe repentance from living a life for your own will and your own way is what it'll take for you to capture the heart of God who leaves the 99 and goes after the one who is like the woman who had 10 coins but lost one. And when she found it, rejoiced and celebrated with generosity. And while there's always a personal challenge to walk away with when we read the scripture, the reason why the church, since the days of the early church, gathered to read and study the scripture was because God was wanting to speak a word to his people. In fact, most of what is written in the scripture, while applicable to individuals, was actually written and could be only observed in a context of community. This is why in the New Testament alone, there are over 51 another commandments. There are 
are multiple passages of the scripture that you can't even live out outside of the context of community. And so while there's a personal responsibility to engage in the journey of becoming a person of the kingdom of heaven, there's also a corporate responsibility to engage in the journey of becoming a church that God uses to accomplish his mission in the world. So the question is, what would be the challenge for us then? Well, I think, this is my opinion, I think if we are to share in God's heart, finding joy in the repentance of those who are lost, we must facilitate a culture of rejoicing and generosity in our church. That means pouring our lives and our resources into God's mission of seeking and saving the lost. Seeking and saving the lost. And into celebrating stories when the lost become found. I want to tell you something. My heart longs. My heart longs to have this pulpit be filled with story after story after story of how God is using you, is using me, is using us to see that the lost are found. That those disconnected from God and community are found. Why did I put it this way? I know some of you might say, you know, Phil, I, I get it. People disconnected from God can be called lost, but you're saying that people who aren't part of a local church are lost. I don't know if I believe that. Is that what you're saying, Phil? Um, yes, I am. I'm saying that if you are someone who professes to follow Jesus and are not engaged in community in a local church, then you're lost. And if you'd like for me to help you understand why the scripture is clear about it, and I, I believe it is, we can grab coffee and I'd love to... Uh, help you understand this perspective that literally has existed since the beginning of the early church. This phenomena that I can be a follower of Jesus outside of community with the local church is a relatively new phenomena and one that I I believe that the disciples were very adamant to speak against, which is why Hebrews 10.25 exists. And do not forsake the assembly as some of you are doing, as some are doing. And so even beginning in the, in the beginning of the church, there was a tendency to do that. But there was a fight against it. Why? Because if you are disconnected from a community of faith, you are lost. There are things about God that you will never understand outside of the context of community with those who are following Jesus. Now, in, in case you're wondering, oh, I get this, Phil, you're, you're talking about Sunday gatherings. You're trying to get more people to Sunday gatherings. This is what you're doing. Listen, 
This concept includes our gatherings where our communities come together to worship God and study the scripture. And in the coming weeks, I'm going to give more clarity about how I believe we can be more intentional about Sunday gatherings to help more people engage in the journey of increasingly growing in faith and submission to Jesus. But this is not just about Sunday gatherings. This is about all of us surrendering and investing time, energy, and resources towards building relationship with people disconnected from God and his church. We refer to this today as being an influencer, if I could use the language of the young people. Paul called it becoming all things to all people that I might save some, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Jesus would actually call it my incarnation, the giving up of his rights to become God in flesh dwelt among us so that we could see and know that he is Lord and that we could be saved, as Paul would describe in Philippians chapter 2. This is also about us surrendering, surrendering, investing time and energy and resources by repurposing the rhythms of our lives, repurposing the rhythm of your life to include living life on mission with your church family. It's about getting connected first in community and not just saying that community is important. Like not just getting, like I, I will admit that you're right, Phil, when you say community is essential to uh, a faith in Christ. Do it. <laughs> Don't just talk about it. And it's moving past Bible studies and prayer chains to actually doing ministry and building relationships with the lost with your community. With your community. This is about all of us surrendering, investing time, energy, and resources so we build reputation in our community. This means inviting people into the rhythms of this local church so that people would know that you truly are a disciple of Jesus by seeing you love and be loved by your church community. Like, why is that important, Phil? I don't get it. This is what Jesus meant by what he said in John thirteen thirty five when he said, hey, all of the world will know that you're my disciples by what you post on your Instagram feed. No. The whole world will know that you're my disciples by seeing what political stickers on your car. No, no. Uh, the whole world will know you're my disciples by seeing how nice you are to me. No, no, wait. The whole world will know that you are mine when they see your what? Love for one another. And this is not to be confused with, oh, well, I love people. No, 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 no. Who's the one another here that Jesus is talking about? Church. Brothers and sisters in Christ. You want to let the world know that you are God's disciple? You have to invite them into the rhythm of seeing you engage in life, of loving your brother and sister in Christ. And some of you are going like, wow, I'm not connected to the people in my local church enough to say that people could even notice that. Well, then that's a problem you should fix. That's a problem you should fix. It means actually being able to say with confidence that 
If we no longer were a part of a community, our community would not only notice that this church is gone, but that they would miss us. I don't know if we can say that right now. Like, I, I just don't, I, I, I don't know if, if clarity dropped off the map a year from now, I don't know that anyone in this community would notice any difference. We should solve that. It also means being, as Jesus taught in Matthew 10, 16, shrewd as serpents and gentle or innocent as doves. And I'm looking at Adam here. I've, we've had many conversations about what this means theologically. And if you, uh, if, if you have not heard me teach about I've taught about this before, but I don't have time to go into it. But basically it's this. It's being aware of the realities of our current culture and time and living out God's mission in this hostile world, making wise decisions while at the same time living blameless and innocent lives. For example, being shrewd as a serpent for us, and I'm going to do an easy one. This is like a gimme. We can go deeper on this, but this is just for the sake of illustration. Being shrewd as serpents would look for us like this, utilizing technology like a website or social media to spread the message of the gospel and welcoming people to explore faith in Jesus and community with us. Like it's the reality of our culture. Culture likes the web. There are parts of it that are bad, but we can use it. We can be shrewd as serpents. We can use these things that are in the reality of our context for the benefit of God's mission in the world, but we're also trying to be innocent as doves. By recognizing that even though there are businesses in our community and there are other churches that do like yard signs, <laughs> you ever see those? Where people put the yard signs out, which by the way, I checked with the city is illegal without their permission. And there's certain instances you could put it, but I, I guarantee you, most of them are doing it illegally, which is the reason why we don't do so. We haven't done signs in years. Some of you are like, well, we should, you should do those yard signs, Phil. It's like, you know what? We thought about it. We want to live blameless. We want to be innocent. So we're not going to put those yard signs out. Does it make sense? So we're shoot as serpents, but we're innocent. And so the question is, in light of all of this that Jesus taught, the big question is this, what will you do? I need you to think about how you are to respond. Not to what I said. I, I would hope that for some of you, Something I said resonates with you as your pastor, as pastor of this church. But I hope for you who love and follow Jesus that you at least listen to this and you said, there is something about what Jesus said that has led me to know that I must do something. I just want you to write that down. Nobody's going to look at it. I'm not asking you to share it with anybody. This is a very introvert-friendly Activity, okay? Not having you turn to your neighbor and pray with them about you. No, we're not going to do any of that. But you're going to write that down, and when we get to the last song, here's what I want to invite you to do. You can either do it literally by putting it in your hand, like this, fold it. But here's what I want you to do, to lift a prayer up to God. Whether it's through the lyrics of the song, song that Josh picked is going to be perfect for this Or maybe it's a personal prayer that you make while everyone else is singing 
and ask God to help you have the kind of courage it will take to actually go and take next steps towards obedience, towards what God is asking you to do. Because whether you know this or not, I believe that each of you were made for something great. God brought us together for something great. But first, we not only have to believe it, but we have to take steps towards obedience.